Good morning, CFC. Glad you're with us this morning. And, and having just declared what we did in song, I, I want to invite you to take your Bible, uh, whatever you have it on, mobile device, or if you have a hard copy right there in front of you, would you grab it in your hand? And, and I know we just declared this in song, but I want to invite you right now uh, with the scripture in your hand to let's ask the Lord to speak to our hearts from his word. So if you would bow with me, Father, uh, thank you that you have given us your word that we would know your heart. And we do want to, in this moment, say, here's our heart, Lord, that we might know you and you might speak to us in ways, Lord, that would not just transform our thinking, but our, our thinking transform that our lives would be transformed, that we would place ourselves humbly below the scriptures, that we would place ourselves humbly below you and believing, Lord, that you give grace to the humble. So we believe that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we believe that your commands are not burdensome. They're an expression of your love, and so we look forward to your spirit illumining our hearts to your word uh, that we might walk in the freedom that we have been given through the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. All right, so with the scripture in hand, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. We looked last week at chapters 7 and 8 as Noah got on the ark and then was on the ark for over a year. And... As he, after over a year, gets off the ark, it is a whole new world. And really a whole new world. Because now, a world that the population estimates that pre-flood, pretty broad, but a lot of people. You know, growing up as a kid, I thought, you know, it's Genesis chapter 6. There couldn't have been that many people. But if we look at a growth rate equal to what the growth rate now is now, a, a low estimate would have been hundreds of millions of people on the planet during the flood. If, because the longevity of life prior to the flood uh, was what it was, then it could have been an even greater growth, growth rate in the, the population being billions as it is today. So uh, think about going from hundreds of millions low to billions to eight. That's a whole new world. And so chapter Nine of Genesis introduces us some to what we're going to call some new world rules. The chapter breaks into four parts, and we could have done a four-part series here, but I didn't think you probably wanted to spend four weeks in Genesis nine. But there's four distinct, very clear. Uh, once we understand them rules, if you will, about how life is after the flood than it was prior to the flood. If I can give you a visual of how different life is after the flood versus prior to the flood, it would be this. And so let me explain, because this may overwhelm you with names and numbers. There were 10 generations prior to Noah. I'm not showing them all so you can see this. And then there's 10 generations after Noah to Abraham. You may remember, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, that the 10 generations prior to Noah, 
including now, there were the average lifespan over 900 years. And you can capture here with Methuselah, 999, Lamech, 777, Noah, 950. Ten generations, average lifespan, 911 years. But watch what happens after the flood. Shem... Born prior to the flood, lived 600. His son born after the flood, 438, 433, 464. Whoo, 239, 239, 230. Whoo, 148, 205, 175. Now, you and I may go, whoa, that's a long time. Not compared to back then. Uh, There is a dramatic change in the world. And if you want me to explain it, I can't. I have no idea, quite frankly. There's lots of suggestions out there, uh, outside of scripture, that that I'm not going to get into. I just want you to see it's a new world after the flood than it was prior to the flood. There is this huge gap, a huge lifespan that's dramatically changed. So, in this new world, here are four sections from chapter 9 that give us what I'm simply calling the new world rules. First of all, there are the kitchen rules in verses 1 through 4. Let me read them for you. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Is that new? Now this is when I can't, I hate that you're not in the room so I can see your heads go. No, that's not new. That's straight out of what God said to Abraham, Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So what he had said to Adam and Eve, he says to Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So that's not new. Here's what's new. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. That's like my life verse right there. And all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be, here it is, food for you. I give all to you, watch, as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. So, here's the new rule. The kitchen rule. Meat is on the menu. Now, some of you are, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Because uh, you'll remember, if you were with us back at the beginning, uh, God did not originally intend humanity to eat meat. He gave them in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the green plant to eat. Post-flood... Meat. And some of you are going, see, that's why the lifespan went from this to this. Because they started eating meat. Well, that could be it. You want to live 175 years? Have all the broccoli you want. Now, I don't think all broccoli is going to get you 175 years. It'll get you other things, but I don't think it'll get you 175 years. (laughs) So, moving on from that. Meat, this is brand new, is on the menu. So, Do we live in this new world? Do we get meat on the menu? Uh, Medium rare meat on the menu? See, it's so interesting. It's so clear here. And yet, if we have capacity as humanity to do anything, it's to make what God makes clear and then try to work it ourselves and make it complicated. So 
meat's on the menu, but then when you get to the New Testament and you get Jesus interacting with religious people, there's this this huge debate. And then the church is born and the debate gets even hotter. Are you allowed to eat meat? So I, I want us to take very simply meats on the menu from Genesis 9 and show what I think is a bigger principle that's revealed in the New Testament. Because in the early church, there was great debate about whether you could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols or you should not do that. And Christians were fighting about it. So Paul writes two places, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10, and Romans 14 about this very issue. And again, you may go, nobody fights about that anymore. Uh, it's not the issue that I want us to see. It's the principle. But you have to see it applied to the specific of that day. So he says in Romans 14, one person has faith that he may eat all things, broccoli and ribeyes. But he who is weak eats broccoli only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So, is meat still on the menu? Sure, it is. It is given by the Lord. But let's make sure we understand it is a matter of conscience. In other words, some would go, uh, if they are in line with Scripture, they're going to go, yes, it's permissible, but I'm not going to partake. That's a matter of conscience. Yes, the Word of God gives freedom, but I'm not going to uh, exercise that freedom. It's permissible. It's a matter of conscience and preference. You may like to, to cook your meat until you can barely chew it. Or you might like it a little juicy. Preference. Matter of conscience and preference. Why is this so important? Here's why. Paul continues in Romans 14. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore in this area where there is freedom, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. You know what Paul's saying there? My conscience is clear to eat meat, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, him it is unclean if his conscience can't take him there he shouldn't go there you see for if because of food your brother is hurt here's what I don't want you to miss whether we're talking meat vegetables or some other matter of conscience here's what I don't want you to miss you are no longer walking according to love if your conscience becomes the standard for everybody else by which you judge, you are not walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So pretty straightforward meets on the menu. 
But our preferences and our conscience can become bigger than the, what they're intended. They are intended to, to guide us under the authority of the word of God, not to guide everybody else. So let's mark this very clearly. Our defining mark as Christ's followers is to be our love, that we walk in love and not our dividing lines. See, I've been so struck as I've gone back to how we can take something that the word of God says clearly, we can interject our own conscience, our own preferences, and then we become known by our dividing lines, by where we stand, not by our love. Regrettably, the Christian church is generally defined by how we divide, not by how we love. That's a huge loss for the kingdom of God. We need to be known by our love for one another. This is what the apostle Paul is saying. Listen, he says, therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. But here it is. Here's what we would be known for. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, what if a watching world did not look at the Christian church and see us divided by our preferences and saw us united in righteousness? Our submission to this is what God's word says and living in it righteousness and then that what peace which comes from where the holy spirit and joy that comes from where the holy spirit that friends if we can hear anything in our world today today i hope you're going to hear this this morning and you'll ask yourself what defines my life what defines my family what defines christian family chapel what defines the church that you might attend is it our dividing lines or is it our love, our righteousness, our joy, and our peace in the Holy Spirit? And if I can just go one step further and apply it to the very specific of our day, I'm going to edit. This is not what Romans 14.3 says. So I've put in italics what I've changed. But here is a specific application that I think we would do well to follow today. The one who social distances slash wears masks is not to regard with contempt the one who does not social distance slash wear a mask. And the one who does not social distance slash wear a mask is not to judge the one who does social distance slash wear a mask. For God has accepted him. You may go, oh, come on, that's silly. It's not silly. Friends, some of us feel very strongly on one side of the issue here and another. And I am completely good with you, as Romans 14 says, being fully convinced in your own mind 
But when you become fully convinced in your own mind, stop short of becoming so fully convinced for everybody else that you become judgmental of those who have become convinced differently. We think that unity in the church is about conformity, and it's not. Unity in the church is about humility, not conformity. So we don't all have to say, hey, we're going to do this exact same thing. You may feel differently. You may act differently. Just don't judge. where God has given freedom. Hey, where God has spoken clearly, that's not a matter of conscience. That's a matter of submission. Where he has not spoken clearly, where there is freedom, that's a matter of conscience. And humility is the pathway to love in matters of conscience. So let's love one another. Let's treat one another with love. Let's Speak about one another in love and not emphasize our dividing lines. I think it's a good word for us in our day. So, kitchen rules. It's really more than about meat. It's about love in our present day. Second, let's look at corner rules, verses 5 through 7. Now, I call them corner rules because at first you may go, I don't know what that means. Corner rules meaning this. In our house growing up, the corner was a place of discipline. We had the spanking spoon and we had the corner. And so if it was an offense, if you will, if it was a disobedience that did not deserve the spoon, you got the corner. And our kids could tell you the corner was like this. Nose in the corner, hands behind your back, not moving. Timer set. And if you turn around, if you talk, if you slouch, if you sit, if you do this with your hands, more time in the corner. So. It was simply a place of discipline. So, new world rule. Here's discipline in this new world, Genesis 9, 5 through 7. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. You see, this corner rule is actually founded in God's intent, be fruitful and multiply, honor life. And we honor life by capital punishment being in effect. This is the foundational passage, Genesis chapter 9, for capital punishment. If you're not sure what that means, that's simply the authorizing of taking of a life because of a crime of premeditated murder. And why? Because you may go, that doesn't make any sense. You're going to take a life because someone took a life? That doesn't seem to honor life. No, actually, the scripture says the exact opposite. 
It says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Why would you do that? For in the image of God, he made man. In other words, according to God, the ultimate expression that life is sacred is revealed in capital punishment. It's the ultimate expression of the sanctity of human life. That's what God is saying here. That's why he says uh, it's rooted in for man is in God's image. And what's he follow with? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Now we may get into this in in Q&A, and I invite you again anytime during this. If you have a, a question that you want to send in, you can send a question in to our text line. We have it available the whole time throughout. You don't have to wait until the end to uh, text a question. But if you want to text one now, <clears throat> excuse me, you can. <clears throat> um, one of the questions that people wrestle with is, is it a contradiction to uphold the sanctity of human life by being pro-life, being against abortion, and then being for capital punishment? How, how can you be for both? How can you say we should save a life, but then we should take a life? And what I hope you saw in this text is this, both have the same biblical foundation. Man is created in the image of God. And therefore, we would, knowing it's abundantly clear, maybe 50 years ago, it wasn't clear that life began in the womb, that life didn't start just after birth, that life began at conception. Nobody can argue life begins at conception. And therefore... We uphold the sanctity of human life by being pro-life. Not agreeing with the taking of life out of the womb and abortion. And for the very same reason we would uphold, there is a biblical foundation for when a person in premeditated murder takes a life that their life is required of them. With this important caveat, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, because that's true, verse 1, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to... Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good. And you'll have praise from the same. Hey, that, that applies from the home to the police. You don't want to be afraid? Just do what's right. But when you don't, God has placed governing authorities for punishment. Now watch what verse 4 says. 
for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword. Now just think about the expression, bear the sword. (laughs) A sword is not a whip. A sword is not a corner. (laughs) A sword is not a spanking spoon. What's a sword for? Sword is for taking of a life. And who does it belong to? Ministers of God who have been established as governing authorities. For it, this whole passage has been about governing authorities. It does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So, capital punishment belongs to governing authorities. In other words, there is no biblical basis for personal revenge. This is never intended for personal use. No personal vendetta. Governing authorities established by God. Third, patio rules. This is what chapter 9 is actually probably most known for. It covers verses 8 through 17. I'm only going to read verses 11, 12, and 13 because the, the balance of the verses basically repeat what is stated in 11, 12, and 13. So 11, 12, and 13 say this, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow, think about it, bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And so Genesis chapter 9 is often most known for this is where patio rules. In other words, when you're outside and you look up, there is a reminder that God says there will no more be global floods ever. He will never do what he did in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 again. And that the rainbow is the reminding sign that God will never flood the earth again. Rain? Yeah. Rain a lot? Yeah. (laughs) Flood your house? Maybe. Flood my house? Maybe. Flood your street? But never flood the earth again. The rainbow is the sign. Now, you, you may go, oh, so the way God brought a global judgment upon the earth in Genesis will never happen again? That is not what he said. What he said is it will never happen again through flood. But will it happen again? This is why, this is why I hope you have not missed the importance of what we've looked at the last few weeks. It will happen again. And it's an absolute travesty to go, how did we not see that God said he would do it in Noah's time and he did it and he said he's going to do it again? Why would we think he wouldn't? 
So what's round two going to look like? Second Peter chapter three says this. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where's the promise of his coming? You Christians, you say God is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Where is it? When's it going to go? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. We thought maybe time is proven. You're wrong. Watch what the scripture says. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. So if you've thought, nothing's going to ever change. God's not going to do that again. It may escape your notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. In other words, God spoke this into existence and then what? Through which the world at that time was destroyed. How? Being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved not for flood, but for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. It's coming just like it did upon ungodly men. Then it'll happen again, but not by flood, but by fire. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. So what you think is a long time isn't a long time. And what you think is a short time isn't a short time. Why? Because God is eternal. He stands outside of time. You and I are stuck in time. And so we think God is slow. Our God is fast. He's not in time. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. <laughs> I know slow people and I know patient people ain't the same. God is not slow, he's patient. Patient toward who? You, me. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. <laughs> Make this personal, folks. See, I don't think God's slow. I rejoice that God was patient. What if my grandparents and their parents who followed Jesus said, Jesus, come quickly. And why don't you come? And why don't you do what you said you were going to do? I got to say, I'm grateful. He was patient because by his patience, I came to repentance. I came to believe that what God says he does, and he is a righteous and holy God who will judge, and his judgment will fall upon all those who fail to trust in his son to be their savior. So is it true? God has not yet done what he said. It is true. The rainbow is not only the reminder that he will never flood again. The rainbow reminds me he will judge again. But it's the reminder God is being patient to you. God's being patient. Why? For repentance. That we who have been shaking a fist at God would humble ourselves 
would not trust in our own understanding, would not believe what we think is real and right, that we would submit ourselves to him to believe that his son was indeed God. And his son did indeed die, not for his sin, but our sin. And that believing in him, we might have life eternal and life abundant. That's why God is patient. But the day of the Lord will come. In other words, there will be a time where his patience is finished and his judgment comes. And it'll come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. You see, the flood took this months, rain, 40 days, 40 nights, and the floods ascended, the water ascended, and then it descended. It won't be slow like that next time. There'll be fire and it will be a consuming fire and this world and the way we have known it will be no more, completely destroyed. Between now and then, what is God doing? He's being patient that you might repent and believe in him and trust in his son to be your savior. So, Patio rules, no more global floods ever. Rainbow is the reminder, but the final judgment be, will be with fire, not water. And I just want to ask you again, wherever you're watching this morning, have you trusted in Jesus to be your savior? God is holy and God is just and God is patient and gracious and his patient grace is inviting you to repent this morning to change your mind and believe in Jesus to be your savior that's the patio rule finally we look at the hall closet rules now hall closet I don't know what's in your hall closet, but many times the hall closet is where all the other stuff that we're not sure where to put, we just, where, where, where do you want me to put this? Put it in the hall closet. And so kind of a, a rule is don't look in people's hall closets because if they wanted you to see what was in the hall closet, guess what? It wouldn't be in the hall closet. <laughs> so it's kind of the stuff we don't usually want to look at, the hall closet. And... Genesis 9 ends with a passage that I'm sure if Noah would have had a vote, he would have went, could we keep this out? Could we like keep this in the hall closet? And as we read it, you and I, uh, no doubt, don't be frustrated. When you read this, you're going to finish and go, huh? Because when I finished, I went, huh? In fact, when I finished, I thought, maybe I need to like be gone this week and let Tony teach. But actually, I think we're going to read it, scratch our head, be confused, go back and look and go, what's it say? Before we try and figure out what it means, let's just ask a question, what's it says? And, and we're going to, I trust, come out the other side of this passage and go, I am so glad we took a peek in the hall closet. So let's look at the section. 
18 through 28. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. That's going to become important. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole world was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. That's where you go, really? We need to include this? Here's why. Verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers, Shem and Japheth, outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan. Huh? Who's Canaan? The son of Ham. He's Noah's grandson. What do you have to do with this? Well, he was the son of Canaan who walked in, right, and saw that. Noah says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So Canaan gets cursed. Shem gets blessed. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. So Japheth gets a blessing not as big as Shem's and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Japheth. Huh? Noah lived 350 years after the flood, period. What? See, this is when you're glad. I'm so glad you're teaching. (laughs) You're thinking, I don't want to have to explain that. So I spent a lot of time on my back porch going, Lord, what's going on here? And here's what helped me. Because now I read that and I go, it's so clear, but it wasn't clear to me before. Here's what helped me. I simply asked this question. What do we know from the text? It's always a good question. Because sometimes we try to jump to interpretation before we do observation. So what do we observe? What's the text say? Here's what the text says. A righteous man got drunk. And to understand this text, we just have to be willing to make that observation. A righteous man got drunk. And sometimes we just go, okay, something's wacky here. I don't want to acknowledge that. Was he righteous or was he drunk? Was he righteous or was he drunk? He was righteous. And he got drunk. Why? Because our righteousness is never achieved by our works. And righteous doesn't mean we are Perfect. It means that we are made righteous through our faith in the God who is righteous. And I am not excusing Noah, but it's a reality. Righteous people in your life are going to do wrong things sometimes. It's not an excuse. It's a reality. Because To be a Christian is not to be perfect. It's to be made righteous according to what Christ has done on us. And then to learn to live in that righteousness. Noah, 
I'm not excusing them. I'm not going to buy into, by the way, the, the, the people who go, well, Noah was farming in elevations where he didn't used to live, and so he used to drink so much, and that didn't get him drunk, but now he's at a higher elevation, so when he drank that much, now he got drunk. You know what that tells me? That tells me we can't handle the fact that righteous people sometimes do wrong things. Righteous people sometimes do wrong things. And we got to go, when it happens... What do we do? What else do we observe from the text? One son, Ham, saw it and did what? This is what the text said. He told others. He told his brothers. And ultimately, he was cursed. Now you may go, oh no, he wasn't cursed. His son was cursed. So what about that? Uh, the text doesn't say, I have an idea, but you got to come to Q&A for that one. All right. <clears throat> Third, it says one son sought, two others told others. Third thing it tells us is that two sons heard about it, covered dad up, and were not cursed. And when I simply looked at when a righteous man did a wrong thing and one, one person sought and blabbed about it, and two people heard about it and covered it, I wasn't confused anymore. In fact, I was phenomenally encouraged that Genesis 9 actually becomes a real-life story, a real-life example for you and I of what First Peter says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love, and it uses the word that even is pictured in Genesis 9 because love covers a multitude of sins. See, this is the hall closet rule. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's how we deal with the fact that righteous people still do wrong things. It's not an excuse. Can I say that enough for you? It's not an excuse. It's a reality. And we in the church have either got to learn to deal with the reality righteously or act like it doesn't happen. And then the church becomes this fake place where everybody knows it's fake. Uh, A joke came to my mind. I was processing whether I should tell it. And I'm going to go no on that one. Okay. Um, Love covers a multitude of sins. We'll stick with the scripture, not with my jokes. Okay. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, uh, you see that's what, who did? Shem and Japheth. They covered their dad. The question then becomes, okay, is that what we always do? No. No. It says a multitude of sins, not every sin, and not always. In other words, maybe it would be better, more clear to you if I said not indefinitely. Not every sin. It covers a multitude. I think it's specific and important that we observe 1 Peter 4, 8 doesn't say love covers every sin. It covers a multitude of sins. It covers... Lots of them, not all of them, and it covers them for a determined period of time, but not an indefinite period of time. 
Which then begs the question, what are the covering principles? And here they are. I never expose to shame. So that's part of what happened of what Ham did with his dad. Exposed his shame. I never exposed to shame. Why? Because shame brings death. But I do expose for the purpose of bringing repentance. So let me give you some New Testament uh, truth around this principle of love covers a multitude of sins. And we figure out when and how long. If someone sins in a manner that puts someone else's life and health and safety at risk, the time is not to cover, the time is to tell. This is why, and I know we dealt with this a couple of weeks ago in the, in the Q&A. This is why if there's an abuse situation going on, we don't cover abuse, we expose it. And we expose it by first calling the ministers of God from Romans 13, the police, the governing authorities. Let me tell you, if you tell it to the church, you know the first thing we're going to say? You got to tell it to God's ministering authorities, the police. So call the police first. Uh, when other people's health and life are at risk, we don't cover. So that's one of the covering principles. It's not every sin. Second, it's not indefinite. Jesus gave us this in Matthew 18. He says this, if your brother sins against you, Go to him, very, very important here. It says right in Matthew 18, privately. No exposure. That's, that's keeping the sin covered to the degree that it's been revealed. He knows he's sinned, or maybe he didn't realize it. You know he's sinned, you know it. So you go, you don't call me, you don't call Tony, you don't call your family group leader. You go to the person. If you try to bring it to us, what we're going to first say to you is this. Love covers. So have you talked to them privately yet? And you're going to resist. I've had lots of these phone conversations. Oh, oh. And here's what people say. I'm not really a person who enjoys conflict or confrontation. As if pastors are like, I love confrontation. That's not... I didn't go into the ministry. Uh, People didn't join the counseling ministry because they're like, where's some confrontation? I'd like to get into it. No. We recognize that change doesn't take place sometimes unless confrontation takes place. And how should it begin? Privately. The person who has sinned with the person who has sinned against. Have a conversation. See, what happened with Ham? Instead, I hope you'll see this so clearly. If you want to know, I don't get it. What what was he supposed to do? Here's what he's supposed to do. He was supposed to grab a blanket like his brothers did. Not talk to his brothers. Go grab a blanket. Go in and cover up dad. 
And when dad wakes up from his sin, realizes, whoa, I made a mistake. I was wrong. How did I get covered? Sam, how did I cover? I don't know. Jabeth, how did I get covered? I don't know. Ham, how did I get covered? Dad, you drank too much. You took off all your clothes. I didn't tell anybody. I just came in and covered you up. And in that moment, you know what you hope? You hope Noah, a righteous man, says, thank you, son. Thanks for not blabbing. Thanks for not telling your brothers. Thanks for not telling everybody. Thanks for loving me. I was wrong. And I'm sorry you had to see me make that sinful decision. That's what you hope. That's not what he did. He went, not privately, but he went and told. So Jesus says, go privately. And then he says this. If he listens to you, the person that you go to privately, you've won your brother. If, if Ham just would have went to his dad and dad would have listened to him, it could have ended right there. But he didn't. He goes and tells his brothers and his brothers do the right thing. They don't go tell everybody. They grab a blanket and they cover. Uh, Jesus says, if you go to a person privately and they don't listen... Because if they do listen, you've won your brother. If they don't listen, then, then two or three witnesses go. So is there exposure? Yes, but it's limited. And it's limited to the fact that let's confirm the facts. You haven't gotten them wrong when you went privately. There's not a disagreement here. There truly has been a violating of a clear command of scripture. Confirm the facts. If the facts are confirmed, what are those two or three doing? They are pleading for the person to repent, to change their mind, to agree with. It was wrong. I admit it. And I think differently about it. I turn from it. The goal, private. And if the person doesn't listen, then two or three. And if the person will not listen to two or three, then Jesus says, tell it to the church. Tell it to other believers. Tell it to other family members because that's who we are as a church. We are a family. We tell it to the church, not for the purpose of gossip, not for the purpose of shame, but for the purpose that we, the church, having heard a brother who is in sin and refusing to repent from sin, would plead with them to turn, to change their mind, and to repent. See, it's never about shame. It's never about punishing them. It's always about restoring them. And love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, love covers and only exposes to the degree that repentance is achieved. It's a great picture in Genesis 9 that love looks out for one another. And I want to encourage you to love. 
you're going to have people in your life do wrong things. And you're going to ask yourself, it happens all the time, what do I do? You don't need to be confused. What do you do? First, here's what you don't do. You don't be ham and go talk about it with other people. You go to the person privately and plead for repentance and confession. And only then, if they won't listen, do you move to the next phase. So I finished my study in Genesis 9, and I was struck by something. I was struck that in the strangest of places, it almost sounds like a country music song, (laughs) that love is found in strange places. Places I would have never expected to find love so clearly found in Genesis 9. But look at it. (laughs) Love is not the new world rule. Love has always been the rule. And love doesn't judge in matters of, of conscience. Love does protect human life. Love is patient as God is patient. And love is not only patience. Love keeps his promises and love covers a multitude of sins. And and I became so filled with gratitude for Genesis 9 because I went, Lord, we're the church. We're your people. What if we simply took what you've revealed in Genesis 9 to heart and we said in my personal life this is how I'm going to live and in my family life this is how I'm going to live if I'm married this is how I'm going to engage with my spouse if I have children this is how I'm going to engage with my kids and because I'm part of a church this is how I'm going to engage my family group how I'm going to engage the body of believers this is so rich love never fails. That's what Genesis 9 teaches us. It's what you and I are called for. That is why when you trace love through the New Testament from 1 Corinthians 13, you discover love is the greatest. And when you go to Colossians 3, love beyond all these things put on love. And then to 1 Peter 4, where we look, love above all these things. And the end of 1 Corinthians 12. And let me show you the most excellent way. You see, I didn't expect to find it in Genesis 9, but I hope, I hope by the time we've got to the end, you will be reminded love is the greatest above all, beyond all, most excellent way. And it's not a feeling. It's how we treat people. It's how we don't judge in matters of conscience. It's how we stand for the sanctity of life. It's how we are patient and how we keep our promises. Some of you may be thinking of bailing on your promise right now, and I hope you will be encouraged. I will keep my promise in the way that that God gave a sign that he kept his promise, and here's 
one of my signs right there. I was going to take it off, but hey, too much salt yesterday, I guess. <laughs> there's, there's a sign that I'll keep my promise because that's what love does. And it covers a multitude of sins. Why? Because righteous people still do wrong things. Would that mark us? Not our dividing lines. Would love mark us? So just look at that right now and let the Holy Spirit who we invited us to teach at the beginning, maybe you would go, wow, Holy Spirit, I didn't see it coming from Genesis 9, but you're speaking very specific to an issue in my life. And let's bow together and however the Spirit is applying this text to you, would you say yes to him right now? Spell with me there in the quietness of wherever you're watching. Would you say, yes, God, as you have loved me, I will love others. <laughs> and there's not just general, some specific people in mind. If you said, I'm done, Maybe you'd be willing to say right now, Lord, as you have not been done with me, I'll not be done with others. Lord, as you have forgiven me, I will forgive others. Lord, as you have been patient with me, I will be patient with this person. As you have covered my sin, I will cover theirs. Not indefinitely, but Lord, I will love them as you have loved me. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible gift of your word lived out in real life for us to learn from. And I pray that I would and we would live differently, love more fully this week because of what you've revealed in Genesis 9. To the praise of your glory, we present ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I am well aware we may have a very rich Q&A time. So we're going to take a 60-second break, and then we'll come back together, and we'll have 30 minutes or so of Q&A if you have the opportunity. I hope you'll join us. We'll continue to consider what we've talked about this morning. God bless.